Urgency of the Arts. That is the title of this year's cross-disciplinary module for all Royal College of Arts students in the School of Arts. It is the project I restarted my academic work with this year. Having been tasked with writing a project to align with the theme in the summer, right around the time the world had already used an entire year's worth of planetary resources in the first seven months of 2023, I wanted to bring together a group of students to ponder a topic I had previously explored at the Hochschule Trier in Germany, urban mining. When recycling silver and gold seems evident and has been around for decades, how can the practice be applied to other materials? What organizations and which individuals are already facilitating or exploring this approach? And what could we as artists, makers and designers change as part of our practices in order to become, and more importantly, think like urban miners, revaluing waste materials, critically reflecting on appropriation, and being mindful of the longevity of our own work. In history, perhaps through necessity, reuse was common, and archaeologists have found many examples of urban mining in history. As I think reflecting on the past can be insightful, I'm very excited to be joined by an archaeologist who has been investigating a range of archaeological materials, including ceramics, metals, glass, and waste materials associated with these respective industries. So to talk to me today about her fascination for the subject, her career to date, and get her thoughts on urban mining, I would like to welcome Dr. Carlotta Gardner. Welcome, Carlotta. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do? Of course. So I am an archaeologist and more specifically an archaeological scientist. And I have trained in the field since my undergraduate uh, days. And uh, I focus, as you said, on materials um, and the study of what we can reveal, let's say, about the past from these materials, ancient materials. Um, I currently live and work in Greece um, at the British School at Athens. And yeah, that's uh, <laughs> in brief <laughs> me. So you have received a master's in science in the technology and analysis of archaeological materials. And you wrote a PhD on metalworking crucibles in Roman Britain from UCL. What inspired you and perhaps continues to inspire you to choose a career in archaeology and specialize in materials such as metals and ceramics? Uh, it may seem a little cliche, <laughs> but I've wanted to uh, be an archaeologist since I was a very young child. <laughs> I watched Time Team on the TV in secret, actually. My parents didn't know I was watching it. And uh, I identified that this is what I wanted to do. So I told them about it and revealed the deep, dark secret that I've been watching TV. And um, they were very encouraging. I was very lucky. My parents encouraged me massively in, in my pursuit of this. And I started getting involved in excavations um, from a very young age. And then uh, it just seemed a very natural step to go and study it. And um, I knew that I wanted to work in a very practical environment and degree. So I went to the University of Bradford and studied archaeological science. And uh, as part of my degree, I was encouraged to take a placement year. And this is where I worked at um, English Heritage in um, a department in Portsmouth in material sciences. 
And this is really where I completely and utterly fell in love <laughs> with the world of uh, craft and material and, and exploring this in a scientific method. And then really it's just been continuing from there. The thing that keeps me going and inspires me is just revealing so much about ancient craftspeople who are so often overlooked. We just look at the objects as, you know, these amazing pieces and we forget about the people who make them. And that's something that I think is just so wonderful that we're able to explore. So it's really telling stories about the past and yeah, revealing all this information. So, yeah. Uh, that's true because we look at the objects and we're in awe of the objects but we don't think of the conditions something was made in no what ownership they had over the work authorship as well I guess so which is so important today and uh it's yeah we we see it a little bit in uh, ancient Greece with um we name the painters of particular vase styles and things we you know we have the reed painter for example but really, other than that, we don't identify the craftspeople so much. So, it's uh, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> Very interesting. You now live in Greece, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. working for the British School in Athens. Could you tell us a little bit about your decision to move to Athens? Of course. So it was um, another happy coincidence, really. <laughs> I was studying my, um, my PhD at UCL under uh, the supervision of Professor Ian Freestone. And he, is, at the time, was... Uh, on the committee of the Fitch Laboratory, which is where I work now. And he suggested that I apply for a bursary to explore an aspect of my research. And so I came to Greece for three months and completely and utterly fell in love with the place, both the country and the institute. It's really a very different environment to the normal academic environment, I, I find personally. There's a lot of space to be creative in your research and it's often you get a yes instead of a no <laughs> when you want to try something new. And uh, it's just a very supportive and a supportive community and with very like-minded people. So it's just a really amazing place. And so I tried to stay and I've, I've uh, yeah, <laughs> I've succeeded so far. I've been here six years, so <laughs> keep trying. And so for those listening, perhaps, who do not quite know what an archaeological scientific researcher does on a day-to-day -day basis, could you tell us a bit more about the practice of archaeology in general and then what a, a day in the life of you in your position at the British School in Athens looks like? Of course. Um, so it's probably not as exciting as most people think it is. <laughs> I think people see us as uh, Indiana Jones and, you know, out in the field all the time. And of course, there are, I mean, there are many field archaeologists who work to excavate and they do spend time in the field. And in the UK, particularly, there are two different kind of sides of archaeology. And it's the same here in Greece with the rescue excavations where building projects are happening. Or we have research led projects, which are, you know, are trying to reveal and explore a specific research question. But I think, I mean, there is that, that side of archaeology, which is, I think, what pe most people think of when they, they think of an archaeologist. But there's a lot of work that goes into it after the excavation. And that's where um, I kind of come in or people like me. And uh, so material gets sent off to specialists that often specialize in a material or a period. Or so we have um, people who specialize in Roman pottery, for example. So all the material will get sent off and they sit and examine the material and record it very systematically. Um, Archaeology is classed as a science. So we do try and, you know, do it in a standardized way way but actually most of our days are spent at computers <laughs> in libraries researching and uh, so yeah it's not quite the exciting feel the experience people think in terms of the lab we spend a lot of time at the microscope or in the lab preparing 
we have a whole range of different uh, techniques that we use here at the laboratory. And so it requires different preparation techniques and uh, methods. So we spend a lot of time doing that and then interpreting the results. So Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and just doing that, writing papers. It's all quite normal, really. It's not that, <laughs> like I say, it's very, very standard. In a way, when you are working on a piece like a craftsman, you can spend months and months on one single piece and then people see the piece in a show and they don't necessarily see the hours and hours of tedious work of preparing something for that show or the hours and hours of if you have a practice of working behind the computer to to promote your work or exactly it's very similar in that way <laughs> in your career you must have had the opportunity to handle maybe the materials of or actually the objects pretty extraordinary metalwork pieces do you have one moment in your career that jumps to your mind immediately when I ask you about something really remarkable that you've seen or you can have more than one? A very small assemblage of material was sent to me as part of my PhD work that looked, as you said, at um, metalworking crucibles on, in Roman Britain. I looked at two kind of case studies that looked at London and Hadrian's Wall. And this small assemblage of material was sent to me from Hadrian's Wall. And it included a couple of crucibles, which is why I got it, but also um, this small silver ring and a tiny sliver of gold. <laughs> oh, and some Egyptian blue as well, actually, so a pigment. And it was just, um, I don't know, having spent three years looking at ceramics, I was very excited to get some metal. And it was just, uh, it was really beautiful. And it, we interpreted it as being um, a small kind of jeweler's hoard or little like evidence of a little workshop of an itinerant uh, craftsperson that had potentially come to that fort on Hadrian's Wall to do some repairs or to supply somebody with something. But the ring was completely unfinished. It was uh, still had it, its casting seams and everything. And it was slightly dis, you know, disfigured. And it was just, it was a very, it wasn't a very exciting or beautiful piece. <laughs> it was like a beginning of like a signet ring almost. And the gold was just a, yeah, a tiny sheet of gold, but under the microscope, you could see cut marks and, It just, it represented everything that I love about what I do in that I could see the craftsperson's like practice because it was unfinished and it was just a really lovely little assemblage. But then I think ultimately my favourite that I've seen and I think, like I said, the placement at English Heritage really kind of kick-started my fascination. And I think this was maybe one of the first objects that I looked at was um, a tiny ceramic fragment of a... Um, of a cupel or a heating tray that was used to test how much silver was in a very small kind of piece of metal. And it was, I mean, to the eye, it looks really boring. It's just a piece of ceramic, but it had some very um, like liverish red uh, residue slag on it. And uh, I got to look at it under a very high powered microscope and reveal all these amazing, <laughs> beautiful forms under it. And uh, it basically represented somebody testing how much silver was in this small piece of metal. Um, and they do this by adding lots of lead um, and then exposing it to oxidizing conditions. And then the slag is formed uh, in the ceramic, it kind of reacts with the ceramic and the silver droplet or the gold droplet is left on top. And you can tell based on its weight, how much is there. And just again, it was just like exploring that as a, as a first uh, object was just so exciting. And yeah, so it wasn't again, a magnificent piece to look at, but just the stories that they reveal is just really cool. So. <laughs> I think models are often what I want to see when I speak to students rather than 
final pieces because they say so much more about the thinking process behind making as well. We're very lucky to find those because we don't often because they're recycled or I mean the 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 small ring and uh, piece of gold is it's really amazing that we found it because obviously somebody left it and never came back for it or so it's just because it was you know it was considered a precious commodity at that time so it was um yeah it's only through accidental loss that we get these uh, these amazing experiences so it's quite interesting on that point actually when we think about urban mining and sort of recycling as much as we possibly can there is always that idea about what should we keep for future storytelling or communication and yes my models often go back into the crucible to then make a new piece because that's the practice isn't it but exactly there are perhaps moments where sometimes it's worth hanging on to something just because it communicates that much more than a final piece or exactly and I've just thought of another piece that was really uh, amazing that I saw uh, again on Hadrian's Wall it was um, I was just given it as part of the collection of crucibles that I was looking at because it was associated with it it's very and again it's very unusual that you get given a workshop assemblage you often just get given the metal or the ceramic it's always divided and I, again I was so lucky to get the entire workshop assemblage in this situation and I they basically had it was a small piece of lead that had been poured onto an uneven surface and then it was used um obviously as like a um, as a they were basically punching into it so it was a metal working workshop so they were using it as like um a working surface basically and so and it had all of the marks in it the test marks and everything and it was just and that would have been melted and reused and so it was just amazing to find that like frozen in time that example of somebody's working and uh, yeah i they they're my favorite pieces the pieces that really show the the working and the individuality of these people. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned you have experience working with archaeological materials and waste materials associated. Could you tell us a little bit more about the research into waste materials? I guess at this point, it would be important to say that a lot of what archaeology is, is, is rubbish. <laughs> we are investigating things that people have discarded in the past. Um, and there's in fact a book called Archaeology is Rubbish and it's an early, <laughs> it's, it's kind of for a popular audience, um, but it's very true. And the rubbish reveals so much information to us. Um, but in terms of the, like the metals and ceramics industries at least, um, and glass, in fact, um, the waste products can tell us so much, as I've already mentioned, about the processes that people were using and um, and. And exactly um, how you mentioned that you make your own tools, we see that we see them customizing and changing things and having their own um, identities through that. Um, and so, obviously, I wrote a PhD on crucibles, so that's one of the first waste materials that um, that I kind of focused on, and actually I focus on for most of my academic career. And because they are rubbish, they're waste; they're dis- they're discarded once they're broken. Um, but they tell us so much information about the process from. Um, a materials point of view so they are a really amazing example of the very early understanding of material properties because obviously these crucibles were used at temperatures high enough to melt metal which is um, much higher than they were firing pottery at in, in earlier periods and so the ceramic itself had to withstand these temperatures and so you start to see this understanding even if you just think of it as a, on an experimentation level even if they didn't understand exactly why it worked they were able to kind of push the materials to their limits. 
And I think that's just really amazing to see that that thinking and ingenuity and uh, creativeness from these craftspeople. But you're also able to uh, reconstruct some of the processes that were taking place in the crucible. So what were they melting? What kind of processes, for example, were they uh, testing how much silver was in an object? Were they smelting? Were they uh, just melting to cast? All these things, what metal they were melting. But also what kind of coming back to the, the social side of things again, it can tell us, and, and economic, they can tell us so much information on differences between, um, for example, mine looked at, as I said, London and Hadrian's Wall. And so we're seeing, we identified big differences between urban and military settlements and their way of using different materials. And there was a, a much um, higher level of standardization in the urban environment. And I think it potentially um, represents diversity in population, but also access to materials and, and also communities of practice, I think. So this, it's just never ending, like the information that you can, you can tell about these uh, from these objects. And there's work on medieval crucibles as well by another researcher um, at Cambridge, Marcos Martin Antares. He was a previous supervisor of mine. For his PhD, he looked at late to post-medieval crucibles. And you start seeing this kind of domination of the market. So there's two big production centers and they dominate. And so you're starting to see this preference for specific tools. And it's really interesting to see that like on an economic level as well, just to see this spread and how important these objects were to people. So... Yeah, that's one of the <laughs> one of the big things that I've looked at. <laughs> that all sounds still so very common today. Like you still see significant trends with makers in certain places, and yeah. there is still a lot of alchemy happening in small studios as well because we aren't necessarily as jewelers trained to be chemists. I know this particularly given that I've gone into some chemistry with my own PhD. We do the work more to a sense of feeling and being taught by others that this is how it's done. And then we add our own sort of experience and knowledge to it by trying different things. It's quite an interesting thing to hear that that's perhaps inherent to the practice of metalwork. I was in conversation yesterday with somebody else about ceramics and in a very similar kind of in a similar way. And he used the term accidental science which I quite liked. And it's, yeah, it's this, this exploration of materials without really knowing, but but yet you know the materials in such a different way to how I know them. And actually it's so interesting to come together and talk about it because, yeah, we know them in different ways and it's it's wonderful. So The, the malleability of, of gold, for example, when you go through an annealing process, I was never taught sort of what temperature the gold goes to or to for it to be perfectly malleable again it was all about color and looking at the at the material change and then feeling it when you start to hammer again if it's not been annealed enough you will feel that through the hammer you don't need any more tools than that to understand what's going on it's it's incredibly interesting to to think about that yeah it's very interesting and it's something that we yeah it's something that also translates into the into our study of ceramics as well we we're constantly on this quest to find clay sources and things, but actually when we we come in to test them in the laboratory, we're not making pottery with them. We're testing them in a very materials kind of side of things. And so actually that that communication between craftspeople, modern contemporary craftspeople and us is just so important to to really understand what these materials are and mean. And uh, yeah. So. The world of archaeology, I mean, it is a vast amount of time. It's a vast amount of areas. 
and then a vast amount of specialities. How did you come to choose crucibles? Again, I think it was this this placement at English Heritage. <laughs> it's, it has a lot to do with uh, my, my life and career. <laughs> um, I just became really interested in this. Um, and, and it's actually what I, I still try to focus my research on now is this it, what we what we have termed cross craft interaction. They basically got ignored. And I found I was just like, why are they being ignored? Because like I said, material from sites gets divided up into specialisms. So as a crucible, it's part of a metalworking process or glass or some other kind of in later in periods of a scientific uh, experimentation. But but it's also a ceramic object. So it kind of gets lost between the two. And so often very little work is done. And um, I was really inspired by the the researcher I was working with at English Heritage, Justine Bailey, who is um, an amazing woman and has done so much work to kind of do this. And she'd been fascinated by crucibles and I was just completely kind of spellbound by them. And so, yeah, and I just love the, the interaction between the two materials, basically. So, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> kind of interesting because as a maker, I buy my crucibles. So there's been a whole sort of scientific endeavor behind constructing them for my use and I then incorporate them into my practice as a tool but I don't have much interaction with the people who do the work around the crucibles. We don't know who was making who were making the crucibles actually and particularly pre in the UK at least pre-Roman period they are there's a kind of standard form for each period and so there's some indication that maybe there was somebody making them but they're made from so many different materials and they're very local. And so we think that the metal workers were making them themselves, but there's no way of confirming that. We just, we have no idea. Um, and that's what I started questioning. I was like, how do we know who was making them? Should we, and could we compare them to the materials that were being used for the local ceramics and, you know, trying to understand that. And um, my, my PhD supervisor kind of pushed me towards the direction of the Roman period, because this is when we start seeing wheel thrown crucibles being used. And so it immediately suggests very strongly that there's another craftsperson making them. And so then it becomes this complete interaction. Um, but the the wheel thrown crucibles are modified. So there's an extra layer put on them. And that again, we still don't know who's doing that. We assume it's the metal workers, but there's no guarantee. Um, so it's very interesting that yeah, this constant interaction or lack of or <laughs> yes, yes, because so. I also put a layer of flux on my own crucible. So I buy the ceramic crucible, but I do not buy it glazed. I I then add a layer of flux. But again, that's another you know, glaze is a whole. It's, it's glass. It's another thing altogether. And definitely, yeah, exactly. So it's this cold. It's this combination of everything that I find so fascinating. So I mentioned that I myself am currently delivering a project on urban mining to students at the Royal College of Art, where we are looking into the potential of using waste materials in artistic practices. And even though this connects to contemporary post-industrial urgencies, this really isn't a new idea. Have you come across any examples of urban mining and the use of waste materials in your research? We have it everywhere. <laughs> it's it's everywhere in archaeology. I've come up with so many examples while thinking about it. And I realise it's just, it's present across the board. So there are examples, for example, um, in architecture where they reuse building stones or, and you even see here in Athens and well, across many different sites, 
across the world. You see them using, for example, columns in the wall of a later building and things. So that's the reuse um, of kind of architectural side of things. We see people reusing broken pottery for spindle worlds um, and other objects and other purposes. But then much more on terms of like a, a waste side and something that I'm I'm particularly interested in and have just started kind of exploring is this uh, as an idea. I mean, it's not new at all, the addition of these things, but as a, an idea of it being a waste material and uh, for sustainability and all of these things is um, in pottery, for example, they use what we call grog. Um, which is, or shamot in German, which is broken pieces of pottery. And it's what happens today. It's added into the clay mix to increase its or decrease its, its moldability, its plasticity. And you can sometimes find grog within grog. So you can see this like tradition of using this pottery as a, as a way of kind of altering your clay. So I haven't done very much work on grog, I have to say myself, um, but I find it fascinating. And then something that I've been looking at uh, more recently is the addition of wood ash, which of course is a byproduct of many different industries, the burning of wood or fuel. And this is something that they're doing in the Roman period. They're adding uh, wood ash to the clay that they add to the crucibles. <laughs> and I've started realizing that this is something that still, this practice still happens across the world, actually. And there are examples in Egypt and India um, and other places where they're adding wood ash from other industries into the clay again, to alter their plasticity. And I find that just absolutely, yeah, fascinating. But in terms of kind of like thinking more on the, the metal side of things and the kind of, you know, in that side, we see the addition, again, to clay of slag as either a temper, so adding, again, as adding to the actual clay's um, material. And this, I think, I've seen a couple of examples across Roman Britain of what they call Smith God Pots. And they are pots that have the 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 smithing or the metalworking god Vulcan on them, and in those pots they have slag as temper as the material they've added. And I think this must be some symbolic connection between. So it's not just that it's a good thing to add to the pottery; it's that it's also some kind of way of connecting the worlds, you know, the material worlds with the gods. And I find that really fascinating as a, as a concept that it's not just you know a material property, say. And one that I think that you might be interested in is the use of this slag that I mentioned in these crucibles, the the, the litharge, the one, the lead rich that they're using to extract the silver. And they have evidence that suggests that they were using this slag because it's really a dark, dark, deep red as enamel in the medieval period. And there's also suggestions that it might have been happening earlier in the Roman period. Um, this isn't my own research. This is work that other people have done. Um, but it's really, I think that's just amazing that they're, re they, they're reusing it because it's, a, you know, it's aesthetically very appealing and beautiful. I mean, I really like the idea of not just adding the material for its properties, but that it's conceptually inspirational to add this material and enhancing the object that way is definitely something I think within an urban mining practice in a creative sense contemporary today would be incredibly interesting to do. I wanted to ask as well, I came across a book that referenced the columns within architecture and they called it spolia. Yeah. Is that the correct term for it? Yes, that's correct. This idea of reusing and recycling and what is reuse and what is recycling. Is there in archaeology a sort of clear divide between the two or is that also a gray area 
It's a very good question. I imagine it might be a grey area. We talk a lot about the recycling of metals um, because that's something that happens. And we see from the the elemental analysis of the, the metal artifacts that we're looking at that they get messier and messier because of this, you know, excessive um, recycling. But then there's there's repurposing as well. And, re, you know, there's also changing whatever the reason for using something. And then there's reuse. And I don't know if there is a definition for these in archaeology. It would be something that would be very interesting to look into. And I, I shall. <laughs> I was discussing that with the students. And in, in some sense, it, it feels like it's got to do with the amount of recognizability or the, the amount that you can recognize the old object and the, the amount of processes that have been applied to it. But I, I feel there is maybe particularly in contemporary culture also something to do with the the sort of small scale local artisan change and then the industrial commercial change. They, they feel very different, even though you might end up with, you know, if you if you break down a brick very slowly in your craft practice, that feels different than it's been mashed up in this massive machine and gone into a huge vat of other things. And so it feels that there that that definition would maybe have to keep an eye on that as well. I think it's really interesting. And I, I quite like the recognizability of the material, like how that changes. And I think that's quite a good one, actually, because and there's something quite um deliberate about for example melting an entire piece of metalwork and casting it to something else that's very deliberate and it, it no longer you don't you you will never know what that piece was but that's something whereas if it's reused you could say <laughs> you might identify that it used to be a brooch or you know so I think that's quite interesting very interesting yeah but then if you have a column in the middle of a building no longer performing the function of a column it's very very it's reused but it's definitely not performing the same yeah. function anymore so it's, it's all very interesting I think and I think it can be quite loaded as well particularly in archaeology and it can be quite um yeah the destruction of something and then the reuse of it is just a whatever a piece of architectural stone or whatever you know it's something that's quite um yeah something else to consider as well the the idea of value it's of course an incredibly difficult thing to to pin down like what is it based on and is that something in archaeology that is hard to pinpoint as well it's in, it's incredibly difficult it, and it's something that we have to constantly remind and challenge ourselves on and good archaeologists do they you know because it's so easy for us to interpret any any kind of archaeological results with our our modern mindset and be like oh it's gold therefore it was a highly valued piece of whatever jewelry or but actually, that's not the case. And there's, um, I mentioned him before, um, Marcos Martinon Torres has done some really interesting work in South America. He's uh, at Cambridge University. Um, he has a big ERC project on, it's called Reverse Action. Um, but he's identified that he, he looks at the value of gold, basically, through, it's not his primary research, but he covers it in the way that he looks at the objects and the way they're made and tries to interpret them in that way. And, and uh, he's very, very good for challenging kind of, yeah, the modern the modern perception of things. So it's very interesting. Um, but it's really difficult. It's, it's almost impossible, actually, to, unless unless it's written. We have, obviously, we're very lucky in some periods to have written sources, and then we have a bit of a better idea. But even those are loaded with opinion, and it's very, very challenging, um, or almost impossible. <laughs> you know, in the project, 
urban mining was approached like incredibly broadly and stretched definitely for us to the reuse of objects as well, which is again, not a new phenomenon as we talked about. But in the area of reuse, there is of course also sometimes a possibility for appropriation. How is this viewed in archaeology? It's a, it's a very big topic right now. And it, it's not new, but it's definitely becoming much more commonplace to consider. I mean, we have to think about it on so many levels in archaeology <laughs> and in, uh, in the way that we present objects and things. And this is something that's uh, done beautifully in the UK by a number of museums. And I think, I mean, I don't mean to just pick out just one, but the, the one I know better is the Pitt Rivers Museum and the work they're doing. Um, it's really remarkable. As I said just before, we really have to be aware as archaeologists of what we're, how we're interpreting things as well. And archaeology can be, it can be very political, and it has been. Um, and people have used it in the past. I mean, we're talking, you know, many decades ago, but as a kind of way of legitimizing particular ways of thinking or the way you identify. And I think it's something that we constantly have to again remind ourselves on. But I started thinking of your question in two different ways of how we deal with it today, but also how we would maybe see it in the past. And maybe we, you know, how people would have seen it in the past, I should say. And I think it's as we were talking about with the the reuse of materials and the destruction of them. And I think it's a very, there can be some very deliberate acts there to destroy any connection with a particular past or but again, it's very difficult to identify when that's happened. It's um, yeah, it's a very challenging, <laughs> challenging topic. Changing things, but and also just embedding something that you might you might have found in a scrap store or somewhere, and and you don't know who's made it, and that then ends up in your work, and and it it can you can have appropriated something from someone else and totally changed the context, or and that's. It, I think important to be mindful of so we could definitely as designers and makers maybe look at the field of archaeology and how that's being currently tackled with with sensitivity so that we can do this too within creative practice I mean it's something that's being covered across the board so it's from the early stages of excavation people are becoming a much more aware because often you know, we, we're, as archaeologists, will often travel to new countries to excavate or, and it's trying to, it's got much better at trying to be very considerate that we're not, you know, we're in somebody else's place, we're in, we're excavating somebody else's culture, we're in, and it's, it's become much better in that sense, and much more understanding of, of the, the kind of the power, let's say, of what we do. And I think that's, um, I think in everything that we do in life, we should just really consider that because it's it's from the everyday through to, yeah, our research and it's really important. Um, and yeah, like I said, more and more people are doing it. And I think just, I'm so, I'm so impressed by what happens at the Pitt Rivers Museum um, and the way, and they've been doing it for years before it became kind of a big topic they've been constantly considering it so I think it's uh, a good place to look for examples. Mudlarking as well because there are artists and, and jewelers out there that now urban mine their garnets from the Thames and then either cut them or not cut them at all and put them into jewellery and it is interesting to the thing that that garnet could have archaeological importance in a way but but maybe not so 
give your guidance to to someone going and and if you find something what what are your sort of top tips when you when you see something and think of is this important to to report or not in the uk there are wonderful guidelines from the portable antiquity scheme um and so each county has their own uh, representative from this uh, organization and so obviously as an archaeologist we discourage uh, <laughs> people to just go into the field and try and find things but obviously people you know have an interest in this and it's um things like uh, i mean with mudlarking you now have to have um, a license which is and tr- you know be very aware of all of um the things that you find and um report and and people are really good about reporting things and it's often um and done and then things like metal detecting as well it's really important to always report to the portable antiquity scheme and it basically you can report anything that you think might be important um even if it's something that you don't again see as high value so if it, even if it's not gold <laughs> for example if you happen to come across something that you think might be of interest then it's it's really worth mentioning it to the people of the portable antiquity scheme or or your local museum who might know about the area and that maybe there's a Roman fort there or has never been excavated or I mean the country is covered in archaeology it's something that people kind of don't realize that when we dig up roads we find huge you know the new A14 for example in Cambridge has just revealed so much amazing archaeology um, through the expansion of that yeah and so it's really people are really good about reporting things and I think yeah encourage that <laughs> Looking at the the past approaches to waste materials, is there anything else that you think that we could learn from sort of our ancestors and potentially reintroduce in our contemporary sort of lives and society or or artistic practices? This is a challenging question <laughs> and I really like it, but I, I, it's a very difficult one. Um, and I spoke about it with some friends actually because I thought it was really interesting. And we we were trying to think about whether or not the past past cultures and societies were do have anything to pass on to us (laughs) um and I think I mean we have like I said earlier we study rubbish so by no means you know a perfect example at all because we are yeah we we look for that and and people left it and it still survives and a lot of what people had in the past was not biodegradable in terms of the objects that they used like ceramics and things and and there was I mean as we said also there was lots of recycling of metals um which was something that's quite uh, important if you're not going to use it i guess i don't know again it's about meaning and but um i think perhaps at least in earlier periods there wasn't so much excess in everyday life at least in the elite environment there was definitely you know in some in some cultures and places a huge amount of excess but i think people lived potentially much more simply and I imagine that in most situations, at least craftspeople were producing for need rather than, again, excess. And it was on a household basis, a lot of industry. So it was, we need a new cooking pot. Let's make a cooking pot. And whoever else needs one will make one for them too. It wasn't like, let's make a thousand cooking pots and try and sell them to whoever. And, oh, if they're not being bought, we'll whatever, break them. But there's huge amounts of waste and we find evidence of it everywhere. There's the hill in Rome of the amphora. It's just the entire hill is basically made up of broken shards of amphora. And there are examples in China of the same thing with the porcelain, um, just mountains of waste, mountains of 
slag in Cyprus, for example. Something that I thought was quite interesting in Cyprus when I went on a course a long time ago during my master's was that we were told that modern mining companies, Cyprus is a very rich area for metals, they actually look for the archaeological sites because they know, therefore, that there is some metal there. And that because our processes have become so much more efficient, we can actually mine the ancient slag for metal. <laughs> so that's really interesting. But in terms of what we can reintroduce into our contemporary lives, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think it's um, it's definitely food for thought. But I like the idea of the community. So we had a visit to a scrap store as part of my project, and it's run nearly entirely by volunteers there are a few people who are salaried as part of the, ch the charity and it is wonderful you walk in and all the materials that have come in from film sets or companies local companies who produce certain things and have left over or discarded bits or and it all comes in and these volunteers they sort it they're all experts in different areas and it gets beautifully positioned and you pay a little membership fee, which as a student is incredibly small amount of money. And you go in and you can you can be inspired by all these materials and at the same time talk to the experts if you're looking for something in specific and they might just be able to to find it in this what I would say incredible treasure trove of of things. And and the idea that the community does that, I think, is incredibly interesting. It is definitely something that we perhaps did more in the past, whereas now everything is so perfect. We don't necessarily need to speak to the person who makes the crucibles <laughs> anymore. But these communi this communication and this feeling connected to your area as well and to the local businesses, and it's quite a powerful different way of thinking even the technology that was used in the past was amazing and it's not I'm not I don't want to kind of make it sound like it was you know not but I think it was simpler <laughs> and it was it was less yeah the networks were smaller whereas like you say now it's and and it's the same with clay as well like people don't necessarily know where your clay, their clay comes from and things like that and it's something that in the past would have been the case being much more in touch perhaps with think where things were and um and that they were potentially a finite source i guess as well um, yeah the value of those things then becomes much more I, I i think if you buy a mug from someone who's made it around the corner that is different even though it isn't because it is still a mug so it's it's yeah very interesting to look at that perhaps smaller scale of manufacturing. I mean, particularly in the UK, and you'll know better than I do, but I, I feel like there's much more of a sense of um, exactly what, what I was saying earlier about knowing who made your ring or mug, or and it's much more um, of an appreciation for the craft person. And, um, and I think that encourages that style of making and, um, yeah. But I, I mean, I guess you do. Do you see a difference in the past? I, I do. I do think the sort of smaller scale production and the, and of course, they didn't have the option to potentially buy a mug much cheaper as well from a large store who's made it on mass. Yep. 
because a, a, a craftsperson now in theory can't compete even though they are still competing but they can't compete on price mm. which I think this is where problems start I would say um, and that's something that needs to be addressed in some sense that it that it gets rewarded that you buy something that hasn't traveled for a very long distance and actually has been made by someone around the corner and if it breaks then you can bring it back and they repair it or you learn how to repair it yourself and there is that communication and knowledge there because if you have something that costs nothing and it breaks you throw it away and I, I yeah I think there is some work to be done in that area I can see changes in in that mindset but we have the three r's Everyone knows about recycling. We all have sort of this idea of social pressure on recycling. You know, you should be recycling, which, I, of course, I agree, you should be recycling. But there are two more R's. And I asked my group of students, and not a lot of them knew about the other R's, and that is reduce and reuse or repair or remanufacture or all these sort of... And they are higher up in the hierarchy, but yet, they are not what we think of. And in a sort of capitalist society where we are encouraged to spend to support the economy, this is very counterintuitive to a reduce approach. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how these things develop. Very interesting. And yeah, and to see the impact on, on craft and practice. Finally, Carlotta, my last question. Is there anything that you are currently working on that you are willing to share and that maybe any audience can look forward to like a new publication or reading or seeing from you? So from an academic side of things, I'm hoping that the work on the experimental uh, wood ash tempering will be published very soon. And then also we... We're celebrating a big uh, anniversary here at the in my laboratory. We're turning 50 years old. We were one of the first uh, laboratories of its kind in Greece. And so we have a whole range of activities um, that will end like outreach activities and discussions, hopefully between potters and we, we focus on pottery here, uh, between artists and archaeologists and other race related disciplines. So there'll be a whole range of um, events coming out in the next couple of months um, that will be based in the UK. So you can keep an eye out on the, the website of my institution, which is called Athens. And um, hopefully conversations like this will be happening on a regular basis. Urban mining, a concept that is still in development and in my opinion stretches well beyond its more popular current use in the construction industry. It holds many opportunities for artists, makers and designers. When you find a material or object through the practice of urban mining, you may not have been looking for it, and new ideas can be developed in response. When materials have character, they may not be exactly as you had expected, so your lateral thinking skills need to find solutions which can lead to enhanced creativity. It's important to consider a material's history, its provenance, and ultimately its reincorporation into the environment. Reusing what is already there makes a lot of sense. So we need to ensure we assign appropriate value to those materials. Someone who has dedicated time and attention to investigating the stories materials have to tell is Carlotta. Her insights into the approaches to waste 
and materials and her thoughts on the practice are inspirational. For your efforts and contributions to date and for your time today, I would like to thank you very much, Carlotta. We look forward to seeing what you will be working on in the future. Thank you. <laughs> Next month, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast episode titled Urban Mining with Carlotta Gardner. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.